Part 3. Between Sensors and Effectors Between sensors and effectors, the in-between becomes sense. Trying to make sense. Compelled to make sense. Let go, breathe, and come back to your senses. The point of recounting the timeline of how we evolved was to provide a broader context of how we sense and what it means to sense, to feel, to think, to have a soul, however trying to pinpoint an exact moment when consciousness evolved or to distinguish which species are conscious and which are not is a trap set by a rigid definition. Cusp to compliance is a moving nebulous target. Here in part three of this podcast, we will focus on the linkage between sensors and effectors in the context of evolution and development. Let us appreciate the consciousness, the continuous process of evolution, a continuity that is also characteristic of embryonic development. We mention the seven basic transduction pathways underlying animal development from a fertilized eggs, single cell or ovum, which has been conserved for 3.8 billion years. One cannot pinpoint an exact moment when consciousness arose in evolution and when it arises during embryonic development. In humans, synchronized cellular activity or oscillations between the reticular formation, the thalamus, and the prefrontal cortex is certainly involved in consciousness, but nothing is all or none. Think about it consciously. While fully awake, you are not always uninterruptedly conscious or aware or responsive to sensory stimuli. Think about ocular saccades. Try again to catch your eyes moving when looking at yourself in a mirror. Think about all you do automatically beyond what your autonomous nervous system is already accomplishing. An ethical question arises. When does an embryo become conscious? Which species are conscious? Other species than humans feel too. Undeniably, we have moved on from philosopher René Descartes' statement that only human feels um, or are sentient, whereas other life forms are no different than any object. That was René Descartes' point of view. But we still have a long way to go as a society. The resurgence of our original relationship with nature is welcome. We are one with the trees. Remember, we share the same last ultimate common ancestor, Luca. Yes, I'm digressing. You get the point. Let us embark on yet another story, how sensors and effectors are linked in different levels. Level 1. In unicellular species, sensory receptors are linked with effectors via transduction pathways, which can be regrouped as one, two, or multi-components, or extracytoplasmic factors, as reviewed in the second part of this podcast. Cells that constitute multicellular species also can display sensing and effectors standalone properties across evolution. From jellyfish to human, during the larval stage of box jellyfish, that's Nidarian cubozoan, 
Phototaxis is mediated my is mediated is mediated <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> by multifunctional single cells that comprise photoreceptors, shading pigment, and the locomotor cilium. In human, multifunctional single cells such as in guts and lungs can feel and act by beating their cilia. The outcome is the movement of food and the clearance of mucus, respectively. In addition, there are instances where unicellular species establish junctions between themselves, producing a coordinated output in response to such specific stimuli. We can call this level 1 plus. Such occurrences are characteristic of a colony formed by unicellular species. Remember our eukaryote candidate as the potential precursor of multicellular species, the choanoflagellate. A novel species identified in 2019, choanoflexa, forms cup-shaped colonies that can rapidly invert their curvature in response to changing light levels, morphing the unified mass of unicellular species from slow flagella in to fast flagella out swimming. In fact, the two other closest unicellular relatives of metazoans, ichthyosporeans, ichthyosporeans, yes, and philasterians, also can establish colonies. Gene expression studies in all these three groups reveal that these cells synthesize synaptic proteins when regrouped as colonies. So they behave as a neural network. The presence of synaptic proteins such as DLG, PSD95, Homer, Shank, synaptophysin, synaptogyrin, and complexin in unicellular species surviving as a colony preceded the evolution of multicellular species and nerve cells, let alone the synapses that connect them. What we can take home here is the very foundation of nervous system evolution, the coordination of cells that allow them to move as a whole. Hold this thought for the fourth level when we first introduce interneurons. Spoiler alert! In their simplest form, interneurons are coordinators of muscle-driven movement. Level 2. In multicellular species, in their simplest form, sensory cells can also act as motoneurons by directly contacting effector cells. Dual roles have been documented in nematodes, or C. elegans, for two neurons, IL-1 and IL-2 known to act as both sensors, mechanoreceptors, and chemoreceptors, receptively, as well as motoneurons. IL-1 mediates nose-touch response and foraging, while IL-2 has been associated with nictation, a fancy name for when a worm stands on its tail and waves its head in three dimension. In the plankton, Platinarius dumerili, rhabdomeric photoreceptors as opposed to ciliated, as in human, directly synapse onto locomotor ciliary cells, so that is, catching a photon and then making a contact with the cells 
that is going to move. The outcome is nothing less than the largest biomass transport on Earth, a light-driven movement of plankton. Level 3. At this next level of complexity, a sensory cell is linked to an effector cell by a third cell. This linkage is not an interneuron. Here is the reason. Sensors are neurons, but effectors are not. Typically, effectors are muscle cells. Therefore, these third cells inherited the name motoneurons. The contact between motoneurons and effector cells bears the more generic and widely encompassing name neuroeffector junction. The junction that gave its name to motoneurons is the neuromuscular junction. It is always excitatory. Other types of junctions exist close to home. They are part of our autonomic nervous system, unconscious actions. These can be either excitatory or inhibitory. Examples include gut motoneurons innervating smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, and glands. Unlike synapses, neuroeffector junctions are juxtaposition of motoneuron nerve terminals with effector cells that are open to the extracellular space, allowing for various levels of separation and area coverage between the release site and the effector. They are the sensors eliciting outputs that maintain your body's homeostasis without any conscious knowledge awareness. This is part of the vegetative nervous system. These sensors detect temperature, oxygen, carbon dioxide, acidity, osmolarity, glucose level, hormone levels, and any other biomarkers that are indicators of your general body status. Effectors provide the necessary physiological action to maintain your general body health. This is also called homeostasis. These complex tasks are very much the responsibility of the autonomic nervous system. Another way to think about this third level is to consider all the cells in multicellular species, including human, that have sensory receptors and release diffusible factors that bind to remotely located neuroendocrine cells, which release hormones in the bloodstream that will act on effector cells throughout the body. In the brain, neuroendocrine cells are regrouped in the hypothalamus where they release factors in the bloodstream, such as oxytocin and vasopressin, and in the anterior pituitary, releasing hormones. These factors regulate functions in the entire body, encompassing stress response, thermoregulation, sleep, and reproduction. Other neuroendocrine cells known as chromaffin cells, are found on top of the kidneys in the adrenal medulla, where they release adrenaline into the bloodstream under the control of the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system, that is, the fight-or-flight system. In this very context, we can include any nervous system cells, even interneurons themselves, but at this level, these cells act as sensors. At the risk of repeating myself again and again in this book, in this podcast, 
Interneurons themselves do not contain sensory receptors eliciting conscious precept, percepts um, or awareness. Yes, interneurons do contain receptors that sense and respond to their environment, but their response is to release molecules, neuromodulators, which can act at a distance on neuroendocrine cells. They don't elicit a percept. So examples of neuromodulators secreted by interneurons include cholecystokinin, somatostatin, neuropeptide Y, galanin, and vasoactive intestinal peptide, or VIP. Of interest, imbalances in any of these neuromodulators have been linked with various psychiatric disorders. Most of the sensing activity in interneurons occurs during development, where they play elemental roles in neural circuit differentiation and functional refinement. Upon CNS maturation, glial cells, the main culprits in maintaining homeostatic balance, nicknamed housekeepers, achieve most of the sensing inside the brain itself. They also act as effectors themselves. Therefore, they belong to level one. The same glial cell senses and acts. Glial cells sense a wide range of biomarkers such as osmolarity, acidity, volume, oxygen levels, carbon dioxide levels, and glucose levels. Their outputs include pumps, transporters, channels, and neurotransmitter uptake receptors, all of which correct homeostatic deviation detected from the sensors. Finally, here is one last example of level 3. Close to home. This time for your body's balance, the knee-jerk reflex, which contributes to your ability to stand up. A precise hit with a pointy rubber hammer just below the kneecap, targeting the patellar tendon, activates muscle spindle mechanoreceptors of the quadriceps, which directly synapse with alpha motoneurons in the ventral spinal cord, in turn activating the quadriceps femoris muscle and resulting in an upward kick of the leg. The actual work, the reflex, to actually work, excuse me, the reflex requires coordinating the simultaneous relaxation of an antagonistic muscle, the flexor hamstring muscle. This is where interneurons are required. At their very foundation, interneurons are inhibitory and they play a role in coordinating output effectors. In the case here, muscles. We are ready to embark on the next level, interneurons as linkers. Level 4. Finally, interneurons come into play as linkers between sensors and effectors. At this level, they mediate the coordination of muscle. The knee-jerk reflex upward kick requires mechanoreceptors to simultaneously synapse with an alpha motoneuron that activates the extensor muscle quadricep femoris and an interneuron that inhibits the alpha motoneuron which contracts the antagonistic flexor armstring muscle resulting in its relaxation. So you contract one muscle and you relax the other. And in order to relax the other, you need an interneuron to inhibit the motoneuron. 
At this level, sensors or input and effectors output are separated by at least one interneuron and a motoneuron. One can imagine almost limitless combination of sensors, interneurons, motoneurons, and effectors, muscle cells, leaning themselves to sophisticated pattern of muscle activation and inactivation. Ultimately, the evolution of interneurons made muscle coordination possible, allowing organisms to navigate their environment. Only later on did nervous systems evolve to act as emulators and predictors of the external world, which deserves a chapter of its own, the fourth chapter or fourth part of this podcast, devoted to the next and last level, level five. But let's continue with level four. Oldest examples of this fourth level are found in the platinarious group of planktons with the startled response. Mechanoreceptor cells activated by waterborne vibrations contact interneurons, which then contract motoneurons that connect with ciliary cells. The outcome is a closure of the cilia and an activation of muscle cells. These effector cells are of an organ called parapodia, which protects the species from predators. Here is another instance where evolution does not only lead to higher complexity. The knee-jerk reflex pathway is the essence of simplicity when compared to the already evolved complex neural circuit mediating the startled response in planktons. Yes, so our knee-jerk reflex is actually more simple than the response of planktons. Simple reflexes are evolutionary preserved where they contribute to the survival and reproduction of an organism. In parallel, more complex circuits evolve. All levels of complexity coexist in one organism, such as in humans, us. Here's another example of a complex reflex, the rapid tail flipping that produces powerful swimming strokes, thrusting crustaceans backward away from danger, also named lobstering. Can imagine a lobster tail just pushing the animal backward, or technically the caridoid escape reaction. This is all synonyms. This innate escape mechanism is a common lifesaver to marine and freshwater crustaceans, such as lobsters, krill, shrimps, and crayfishes. Numerous interneurons are involved in coordinating the muscle, producing the brisk abdominal flexion. Therefore, interneurons do not only link sensors with effectors, but can orchestrate complex behaviors, in some instances without sensory inputs. First described in 1946 by Viersma, who studied crayfishes, giant interneurons of the tail. He showed that these interneurons are central players, they command the escape reaction. Henceforth, Viersma referred to them as command neurons in a 1964 publication, Command Neurons. His landmark findings established that the activation, that's making the cell more positive or depolarized, well, of specific neurons could precipitate complex innate behaviors not only in crustaceans but also in several other species. Of note, common decisions are increasingly seen 
as being governed by networks of interacting in redundant cells, not simply by single neurons. Elaborating further on the role of interneurons in coordinating muscles, we must talk about central pattern generators, or CPGs, the neural circuits producing the patterns of neural activity that generate rhythmic motor behaviors such as swimming, crawling, walking, feeding, that is, chewing and swallowing, and breathing. These groups of interneurons can function independently of sensory feedbacks or any other pattern input. Their basic organization is similar between a vast range of species, including nematodes, slugs, snails, zebrafish, lampreys, tadpole, reptiles, birds, or any mammals such as humans. Already proposed by Thomas Graham Brown in 1911, CPGs that allow the whole body to wave left and right, as in swimming and crawling, consist of a half-center oscillator in which two maturely inhibitory halves alternate in activity. We owe a great deal of our knowledge on CPG's networks to Stan Grillner, who studied actual muscle-driven motor circuits in the lamprey. Grillner and his colleagues defined the core neuronal constituents of CPGs, adding limbs to body movement. The CPGs include oscillators for flexors and extensors. Furthermore, adding fins and fishes and wings and birds requires even more complex patterning than simple left-right alternation. Before we move on to the final level where the soul lies, you wait. Can you wait until then? <laughs> I would like to share observations um, about CPGs for locomotion. Studies in laboratory rats showed that complete mid-thoracic spinal cord lesion, so cutting the spinal cord in halfway, at day 7 postnatal, so seven days post-birth, or followed by the ability of the animals to walk as adults. However, similar intervention one week later in development led to complete paralysis. Comparison between both developmental levels reveals that corticospinal axons, which mediate conscious motor actions, have not yet reached the mid-thoracic level at one week of age. Of note, seven days lesion rats can only walk providing that hind limbs are stimulated by a pinch or a direct contact with the ground. I also should add that the lesions independently of the intervention age cause the loss of bladder reflexes to ensure the survival of the experimental animals, the researcher must manually massage the bladder to express urine, otherwise the bladder would fatally burst. Talking about repelling views, picture the decapitation of a chicken. It starts running without its head. I admit the picture is sickening. For whoever ate chicken, I'm sorry to say that this event must have happened so you could enjoy your meal. A digression for you. If you have not read it yet, consider Jonathan Safran Foer's book 
eating animals for a more encompassing, compassionate comprehension of what eating meat implicates. No moral judgment here, just a reflection. Back to the headless chicken. It runs and flaps its wings precisely because CPGs are freed from their corticospinal control. As long as there is oxygen and energy available, the chicken will generate rhythmic limb movements. In healthy rodents and also in humans, CPGs for locomotion are activated by will, i.e. through corticospinal neurons, neurons that run from the cortex to the mid-thoracic level or throughout the spinal cord. When struggling to develop treatments for paraplegia and quadriplegia caused by spinal cord trauma, one is faced with the fact that CPGs might be intact, but not amenable to activation. The promising avenue is the use of functional electrical stimulation below the spinal cord lesion. One very last thing about CPGs in birds, they are also involved in generating birdsong. It is estimated that out of 10,000 known bird species, over 4,000 of them sing. They do so for multiple purposes such as courtship, rivalry, nest building, and prey capture. Young birds learn their songs by listening to a tutor in a manner similar to how humans learn to speak. We can study how we speak in terms of the neural basis by using birds as models and comparing them with each other. Two, four brain regions are involved in producing birdsong. The high vocal center projects to the region robust nucleus of the archistriatum, which in turn projects to the brainstem region that control the syrinx and the respiratory system using CPGs. Complex motor outputs for the generation of unique birdsongs, including stereotypical non-motor, non-rhythmic neuronal activity sequences, can be generated by CPGs that are themselves contained inside larger CPGs, referred to as nested CPGs. In humans, strictly speaking, speaking is not generated by CPGs, at least not in the spinal cord and the brainstem where they lie. Rather, they might exist analogous assemblies of neurons in our cortex that do generate pattern-related to vocalization. These are referred to as cortical CPGs. I just wanted to say that loudly so you could hear this. Recent evidence supports the, evi the existence of cortical CPGs, not for vocalization, not yet, but for finely tuned arm movements which rely on sensory input via the thalamus. You might not be inclined to admire the musical quality and complexity of sounds emerging from other species such as frogs, but there is another promising approach to understanding vocalization at many levels, from physiology to behavior and from development to evolution. Tadpoles, or also called Xenopus lavis, are amenable to CPG isolation and manipulation as a viable whole brain preparation in a dish. So in vitro, inside glass. For instance, Xenopus frogs have six types of calls. One of them, the advertisement call, is generated by two CPGs distributed between the anterior and posterior hindbrain. 
called the parabrachial nucleus and the nucleus ambiguous on each side. The left and the right CPGs are coordinated by intricate interneuron projections between the anterior and the posterior nuclei. A descending input from the amygdala coordinates the stimulus initiation and advertisement calling. Without this input, vocal responses of male to female call become inappropriate. Here we have a reductionist gem, a link between precise neuronal activity and social behavior. Findings linking individual interneurons and distinct behaviors increasingly populate scientific literature. Ancient species such as gastropod, so that is snail and slugs, allow tracking the evolution of individual interneurons in a neural circuit alongside behavioral adaptation, including moving and feeding. To known shifts in environment factors, tracking is achieved by establishing their total gene expression patterns combined with anatomical, pharmacological, and electrophysiological methods. All that for a single interneurons that has its own ID number. With their distinct identities, we can now follow single interneurons and their related behaviors throughout evolution, at least in so-called simple and ancient species such as gastropods. We owe much of the knowledge and tools to South African developmental biologist Sidney Brenner, who introduced the archetypical model C. elegans, also called nematode, in 1963. It's a very, very small worm. Brenner published a seminal paper in 1986 on the exhaustive characterization of C. elegans 302 neurons, falling into 118 classes. Not only does each cell have their own ID number, but all circuits and connections, that is, chemical and electrical synapses, have been de defined. There are over 5,000 chemical synapses, 2,000 neuromuscular junctions, and 600 gap junctions. The gigantic monastic feat of mapping an entire nervous system can only be re has only been repeated once in the tadpole larva of Siona intestinalis by Ryan et al. 2016 using 7,000 consecutive electron microscopic sections, each one being 10 nanometers thick. The lab of Ian Meinzergarten at Dalhousie University identified 177 neurons forming 6,618 synapses, including 1,772 neuromuscular junction and 1,206 gap junctions. This is fundamental research. It is not glamorous, but the implications are fundamental. No pun intended. Brenner would have been proud. Unfortunately, he did not live to fully realize the ramification and extent of his legacy. Why not doing the same for the human brain. Well, the problem is the size. That's the foremost hurdle. Even a mouse brain is about 100,000 times larger in volume than that of the nematode. 
The limiting factor is the absolute requirement to rely on 10 nanometers thick sections for electron microscopy imaging. Nevertheless, we can extrapolate from these two invaluable connectomes. In terms of how this nervous system develops from a single fertilized cell, Brenner put forward two plans. In the first, the function of cells is determined by its genetic lineage. In the other, its function is determined by the function of its neighbor after cell migration. Current findings show that most species, not only nematodes, follow various levels of combination of these two plans to transfer information to new cells during development. Early in development, interneurons act as sensors, guides, support cells, and activity coordinators. Later on, as in the cortex, as the cortex achieves developmental maturation, interneurons become active contributors of the production of reality. To the infinite and beyond the teaser to level 5, while interneurons evolve as coordinators of muscle activation as an offshoot, also called exaptation, they form intrinsically active networks that generate a multisensory predictive interpretation of the outside world, which led to a further offshoot, a prediction independent of any sensory inputs that we know as feelings, thoughts, even the soul. You can experience sensing, you can sense, you can feel, you can do all of that without input from sensory organs. When doing so, you are no longer grounded in the reality, space and time, that you have evolved to produce. You can ruminate without limits. This is perhaps why paying attention to your breath can ground you, calm you. Doing so brings back the evolutionary roots of linking sensory inputs with outputs. However, when trying to do so naturally, your thoughts will drift away and it is their very nature to be active independently of sensory inputs. Your thoughts will drift away a thousand times while you aim to solely focus on your breath. It takes a great deal of patience and training to continue this exercise. At the risk of repeating myself, interneurons do not themselves possess any sensory receptors that elicit conscious perceptions. We are oblivious to their activity. We do not feel interneurons. The generation of conscious perception does not entail generating a perception of the interneurons that generate this percept. Otherwise, it would create a vortex. An infinite loop ensues when attempting to use thoughts to catch thoughts. A situation described in the book Eye of the Vortex by neurophysiologist Rodolfo Linas. The thought about thoughts Catching thoughts has been around for some time, as if we could ever succeed to catch thoughts with thoughts. Philosophers are experts at this approach. They come up with numerous schools of thoughts. Here's a quote from 1076 to 1148. This is the time that a philosopher, Arab philosopher, lived his name is Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, and he said the following, The knower and that which he knows are both one. And he who unites 
and that with which he unites are one, and seer and seen are one. Breathe. The last level, level five, is about the generation of the reality we experience. We're ready for, for part four of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening.